Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Three, two, one, let's go. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. And check out our sponsor. This season, it's, well, it's me. People ask me all the time, Corey, what do you actually do? Well, back in 2008, I co-founded Newfound Research. We're a quantitative investment and research firm dedicated to helping investors proactively navigate the risks of investing through more holistic diversification. Whether through the funds we manage, the exchange-traded products we power, or the total portfolio solutions we construct, like the Structural Alpha Model Portfolio Series, we offer a variety of solutions to financial advisors and institutions. Check us out at www.thinknewfound.com. And now on with the show. My guest in this episode needs no introduction. Antti Ilmanen, co-head of Portfolio Solutions at AQR, award-winning researcher, and author of the books Expected Returns and the recently published Investing Amid Low Expected Returns. A decade has passed since Antti wrote his first book, providing both a decade of -of out-of-sample data as well as a decade of new research. I begin by asking Antti about where his conviction has hardened and the things he's changed his mind about. From there, however, the conversation topics become much more wide-ranging. We discuss structural changes in the market, the growth of passive investing, and his research on who is actually on the other side of style premia trades. We then discuss trend following versus put protection, trend following's difficult decade, and why the outlook for trend may be rosier going forward. Finally, we touch upon some more practical topics addressing low-hanging opportunities Auntie has seen in his role as co-head of Portfolio Solutions at AQR. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Auntie Ilmanen. Auntie Ilmanen, this is a big moment for me because how many seasons have I asked you to come on this podcast now? I think it might have been three or four years. It got to the point, I think, your communications department at AQR felt so bad that you offered me Cliff Asnes as like a <laughs> consolation prize. But this is it. I can stop podcasting after this episode. I am so excited to have you on Flirting with Models. Thank you for joining me. Okay. Okay. So you were beautifully patient waiting until I was ready. So thank you for that. Besides, yes, the multiple invites. But also, 
I am thinking with this one that we are fellows of the same cloth. It's not just our investment beliefs, and I hope we will be disagreeing on something here as well, but it's a spirit of wanting to learn a lot about markets and share it with others, educate others. And I've seen that in you. And so looking forward to this. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I'm excited to dive in here. We're going to be talking about your new book and broadly things that you've learned and changed your views on hopefully over the last decade. And I suspect there might be some things that we disagree on and probably a lot more that we do agree on. So let's just dive in. And I do feel a little bad because this first question for you after waiting so many years to get you on the podcast is not a friendly question, but I have to ask it anyway, because a friend of mine once said that your first book that you wrote, Expected Returns, which is like my Bible. I mean, he defined it as the absolute must-read Bible for what used to work in quantitative investing. And it sort of struck me that I agreed like anyone entering quantitative investing has to read that book. It is absolute table stakes. But I think that this person was also expressing a bit of frustration that a lot of the ideas, maybe some of the style premium had really struggled over the last decade. And you've just published a new book titled Investing Amid Low Expected Returns. And in many ways, it's sort of a follow-up, maybe a bit more practical to expected returns after a tough decade. And so the first question is, if it had been a good decade for all these style premia, would you have published the book? Okay. Well, before I answer, that's a tough question that I'll need to sort of in a couple of ways. I could start with this biblical fashion, oh yeah, of little faith and of little patience. I mean, it, the reaction is very understandable, the strategies. We know they can have persistent, disappointing periods, but it comes out of the gate when it became so popular in 2010s and then in late 2010s, often disappointed. The reaction is understandable. But I would say that importance and difficulty of patience. You say no pain, no premium. I could add no doubt, no premium. So those types of doubts are among the things that sustain these premia, prevent the arbitraging away. Also, I would acknowledge that when a strategy becomes more widely known, it's reasonable to expect somehow lower sharp ratios. I think this maybe went beyond that, but I think like I had some nice picture of this showing what could happen when alpha sort of moves to beta or alternative beta. And that means then that when you are in this business, even if you have got a solid core in your ideas and you want to be faithful on them, you sort of cliche, you've got to keep running to stay still, need continuous R&D, somewhat better models, portfolio construction tools, execution skills to maintain the edge. And you should do all of this while guarding against overfitting. So that's not easy. But I, I would also say that some styles did have good decade, like defensive style had an excellent decade. I think momentum depends on which type was okay. Value and carry type of strategy is disappointed. I realized just recently, I have almost forgotten, that the defensive bet against beta strategy, it actually in my book, it was almost as a postscript, like I brought it in in later chapter, I think chapter 19, with I really wrote Stop the Press because I saw just before the book, a few months before it went up, I saw this Andreas and Lasse's Bet Against Beta paper in SSRN, and it was so compelling that I'm glad I did because I can argue that that was part of my story. Anyway, lots of detours before answering. I would have written it. I would have written it even after a stronger decade. Maybe I would have had less time, so that's another question. But it's probably right that this roller coaster experience influenced the tone in some places, emphasizing 
the importance of conviction and patience and probably having even more humility than I tend to bring to the table. Well, I will tell you that I sort of secretly blamed you for the struggles of 2010 because you convinced so many people of these style premia with your book that you created a crowding effect. And of course, you had to shake out the non-believers with the next decade. So I put it squarely on your shoulders, but I'm hoping with the publishing of this new book, I mean, the timing is right because we've just seen value and trend, which were written off by many as just dead, rise from the ashes like a phoenix. So what's your take now? We're suddenly seeing these styles thriving in what is potentially a different macroeconomic environment. What's changed that's all of a sudden brought these styles back to life? Sure. Let me take it more broadly. The book is about markets offering little and doing well with that, which gets to sort of long shot. So first, I totally confess my blessings because the audience reaction to the book would have been much weaker, to say the least, a year ago or even maybe half a year ago when asset markets were booming and these styles were not yet flourishing. So when I think of the broader picture, this low expected return theme that I have, it highlights that high asset valuations, low starting yields means tough times for most long-only asset classes. I'm going to lead to the long shot in a while. So this implies prospect of slow pain or fast pain for them, clipping tiny coupons or getting this kind of cheapening valuation pain. And the book arrived in April when many long-only assets were giving this fast pain. And what's behind this whole thing? It is that all long-only assets have been expensive at the same time because the common part of their discount rate has been record low. And now that those riskless yields are rising, it brings problems to all long-only assets. It's not only bonds, it's also stocks, real estate, private equity, whose valuations were really underwritten by those low, maybe negative real bond yields for sure. So the fast pain in that sense is not surprising. So now long-short strategies like alternative risk premia, style premia, they are different from long-only premia in the sense that low cash yields or rising cash yields in this discount rate washes out between long and short legs. And so they are sort of zero duration assets, you could say, and that makes them more resistant to Fed tightening and otherwise rising yields. Some of these have performed even super well, such as value and trend, but I would say it can be a coincidence, but not having the headwinds that long-only assets face here, that certainly helps. So I think that's an important part of the story. And I do want to say here that I love that these strate- any strategies really that positive long-run rewards, and gotta be long before, <laughs> before we judge this, and perform well when most needed. So this is a feature where trend following looks quite good, some tail hedging abilities, and I'll probably come back to that. Value is less reliable, but it has done it 20 years ago and now and some other time. So I think many people focus on the, just the strong performance on the first moment, but I really like to emphasize equally much this timing, this doing well when stock and bond markets suck. Okay, so that's what's sort of my best story looking back, but also then looking ahead. It is nice to be in a situation where these things have done well and I think we have got a decent case in saying that there's runway for some more good performance. You've seen Cliff's perspectives, pictures on how value spreads are still wide and it makes a smile every time. So there are some intuitions that basically fundamentals may be helping sustain those wide value spreads and we are shifting into new growth and value stocks and keeping the spread wider. But still, so that's nice. And with trend, I think 
I want to come to that later. But I think basically trend following is not hampered as much by central banks curtailing trends. In addition, we are now in a situation where inflation evolution is important. But I think anything, typically inflation-related developments are more gradual, and that is very convenient for trend-type strategies. It does seem like the setup for a lot of these style premia may be one of the better setups we've seen in the last decade plus, which is really exciting, right? To your point about the value spreads within value, we're now starting to see momentum shift into overlap with value, which is normally a sign that value stocks are going to re-rate into growth, but value spreads are so wide right now, you could see significant overlap in those factors for quite some time, which is interesting, sort of reminiscent of the dot-com era, perhaps, and could be a good tailwind to value names. Yeah, and that was very much the 2000, 2003. And in some ways of implementing these strategies, like when both of those key engines say something, you should listen more and so take maybe more risk in those situations. Yeah. Right. The confluence of the signals perhaps says something extra special about the environment. We're starting to see this setup that could be really positive for these style premia after what was a decade of sort of mixed returns, depending on which style premia people adopt. You, of course, advocate for diversification. People don't tend to do that in practice. But the book you just wrote largely serves to reaffirm a lot of the evidence and thesis you laid out in expected returns. And I'm curious, as you wrote the book, were there areas in which you gained further confidence? And were there areas in which perhaps you've changed your mind? Yeah. In some sense, since I look at very long histories, another 10 years isn't so much, but it's a 10 years, William. So where I changed my mind, I think, like everybody, I certainly didn't see negative bond yields. That can be just like a quip, but it's areas because it had an impact on, I think, again, on all long bond assets. But other than that, I think my core beliefs haven't changed, but there are some of these deals. So I become even more humble about tactical timing, even more appreciative of the power of strategic diversification. And both of these are more due to our research, looking at long histories than the market experience of this decade. And I think from the market experience, there's been a greater appreciation of the importance and difficulty of patience. It is a big theme. I really like try to write it well into the book, not sounding self-serving because it applies, I think, for any kind of investments, the importance of patience. In some sense, I'm talking against my things in saying that investors shouldn't follow my beliefs or anybody else's beliefs, however compelling and, in my case, evidence-based they might be. Instead, they should figure out what the beliefs and portfolios are that they can stick with. And I guess somehow I'm now preaching with more humility. I'd add here another change. And again, these are not big changes. I've had a, I think, somewhat contrarian heart in the long run. And I still love diversification. So gotta do both in some sense, value and mom type of things. But I especially like strategies that combine positive long run rewards with some help in bad times. So trend and defensive have sort of become more of my favorites in this. Again, I realized just recently that in my book, the cube had sort of this precise value momentum carry. It had volatility. And in the book, it was vol selling. And very quickly, soon after I joined AQR, we sort of classified that conceptually under carry, whereas if we take very big umbrella concepts, whereas defensive became a natural way of thinking about that fourth important bucket. By the way, I totally see that I'm giving two long answers. Cliff Haskett is saying that ask Antti a question and you'll get three answers. And I think this is par for the course now. Well, that's the way we like it. We prefer long, thought-out answers here. One of the areas 
that I have changed my mind on, or at least I've thought more deeply about over the last decade. I think in the early 2010s, I was more apt to believe research based upon a great depth of historical analysis. Towards 2020, especially after March 2020, I really started to question the application of some of that historical analysis, thinking about how perhaps financialization of certain markets changed the market structures themselves, or the emergence of new large players like central banks can affect how returns and styles play out over time. How do you think about, you've got this great breadth and depth of historical evidence for these styles. How do you think about updating your priors as new information comes out about participants in the markets or how people are able to access these styles? And when in reality, that new information you have might be noisy and certainly isn't going to be sufficient to sort of knock out the historical data from a statistical perspective. Well, I would adjust slowly, like a good Bayesian with strong buyers having researched these things a lot. So one question I raised in the book is, how do you balance between 100 years of this paper evidence, which has got strategy persistently, pervasively doing well, against a few years where your own life portfolio is sucking? So it's understandable that statisticians give you one answer and most real-world investors give another answer. I'm trying to bridge a little, I think, then by saying that if we learn more about this long-run evidence and economic rationals and so on, that may give investors a bit of that longer wait. So that's my pat answer, and I think that's a key thing. But I think it is also it's fair for skeptics to ask, the world has changed if structural changes make histories irrelevant. And you had some examples. That I think with the negative years and QE, again, I feel very comfortable saying this, that important story for long-only assets, not so obvious for long-short strategies. So again, level effects tend to wash out with them. And then I get to the qualifiers that, okay, so there could be financing spreads widening with higher yields or deleveraging scenarios with fair tightings and so on. That may matter. But again, it should be really less important for long-short premium. Well, I just heard a couple of times recently, like a version of this, that, okay, the market portfolio is now so different than it used to be in the old days now. Maybe tech companies with intangible assets used to be energy companies or financials dominated. So what does that do? And I don't know. I think there's still enough that remains the same in the latter case with equity premium. Some key risks, human behavior, whatever the details are. On your commodity financialization example, I do. So there I would buy that role has turned somehow to negative. But the other, the original financialization stories emphasized as much this idea that commodities may now be positively correlated with equities because they were for a moment. That was a pretty fleeting moment. So there's, I think those stories can be overdone. And the most important thing, I think, with these types of doubting questions is that they can be too easy challenge. Like after a couple of bad years, those who don't believe in systematic investing, it's somehow easy to say that the world has this. So I would want to raise the bar there. I would want to say that, yeah, let's think about that, but it should be more specific so you should have a particular mechanism how the world has changed. And you had something there now with commodities. But like one thing that I think was fair question 15 years ago was whether regulation fair disclosure, whether that would weaken momentum because there wasn't whispering from the management that's so less underreaction. So if you get that story and data that fits with that, then you get more. So I raised the bar. But ultimately, 
Yeah, do consequences, especially contrarians, suffer from structural changes. I'm glad we diversify and we have momentum or trend that can often benefit from those types of changes. And then systematic may have some disadvantages versus discretionary types. So it may be best sometimes to step back, either reduce your weight or even drop out of some strategies like before Brexit or now maybe in response to the Russia-Ukraine. Or you can ask the question, is there something that we shouldn't be doing in this environment? Not hindsight, but sort of forward-looking sense. But it's no easy answer. So I do want to throw it back to you. So you told that you have changed. Do you have some constructive answers, what one could do? Well, I never have constructive answers. I just have a lot of questions. (laughs) I think when I look at market structure today, and I'm still young, so a lot of the evidence I look back can only be historical, not my own experience. You are only young compared to me, by the way. (laughs) That's right. I'm not as young as I once was. But I certainly look at, for example, the experience through COVID and say it felt like there were a lot of endogenous market factors that maybe wouldn't have existed necessarily 20 years ago. And it's hard, obviously, to prove a counterfactual or to really necessarily determine is that is that information relevant? I'm sort of of the growing view that markets have always been a mix between a long-term weighing machine and a short-term voting machine, and that some of the financialization and commoditization of access to different styles and changing market participants has made that voting machine perhaps a bit more violent than it used to be. But I don't think it's so overwhelming that the weighing machine never comes into effect. And so for someone with very long-term outlook, a pension, an endowment, a retiree saving for their retirement. To me, it's just being aware that these market factors are at play to help with the psychological aspect that you should remain diversified and exposed to positive risk premium assets. And that's probably the best most people can do. So does it necessarily change my long-term thinking? No, other than just acknowledging that a 4% move in the S&P today may not mean what it used to two decades ago. It's just a different market environment with different market participants. Yeah, all fair, all fair. But I think it is as difficult and as you say, to draw lessons. What should I do differently because of these things? But, but again, maybe some sympathy and then again, highlighting some of these lessons that we are anyway emphasizing throughout. Absolutely. Yeah. Extracting meaning and action from all these things is very difficult in a very noisy market environment. So I published my liquidity cascades paper, which I think requires you to wear a tinfoil hat when you read it because it's full of just conspiracy theories. But whether any of them are true or not, I think they're just interesting concepts to think about and be aware that, again, the market has changed from where it was 20 years ago. But the fundamental principles of, hey, buy positive expected risk premium assets and diversify as much as you can, I don't think that ever goes out of style from a good investing behavior perspective. Yeah, I think we'll later come back to trend and at that context, I may still come back to your liquidity cascades. We will, we will. So one of the other structural changes, and I sort of quipped about this earlier, but I do actually want to come back to it, is on the behavioral side, because you really did educate an entire young generation of investors, both with your work and expected returns, the papers you published, and really AQR as an organization really helped teach the world about factors and style premia and helped convince the world that these were positive expected return styles that people should diversify into. 
And I think there is a genuine question of at what point do you become so convincing and gather so many assets in these styles that you create a crowding effect that erodes the premium themselves? Well, I think the last few years tell that there's nothing we can do that three bad years can't offset. So, and I could repeat, you know, what I just said about weighing past century versus personal life experience. And again, it's not only empirics, there's lots of other things here, but again, they tend to lose out to this few bad years. And I do like your signature, no pay, no premium, and how these bad times can sustain these strategies in the long run and make risk premium. I mean, one feature is that like, there are some people who say that I cannot trust premia that don't have risk-based origins. And we've had lots of arguments then on how you can have risk premia even now those strategies that have behavioral origins. That's why I think trend is certainly like that. Just a bad performance itself and maybe some effects like you were hinting at that you get crowding effects, deleveraging effects, and they could become serious risks for those strategies, which is, again, in the spirit of what you were saying earlier, how you are sort of changing market dynamics, maybe in a way, if these things become too popular. I do think that there still seems to be pretty natural balance in the market between people who like these types of things and who don't, and then we get fluctuations in that balance over time. I will say for me, anecdotally, it felt like value became the dominant premium post the dot-com era. Everyone learned their lesson. Okay, we need to have a strong value basis. Every advisor portfolio pretty much I've ever looked at, and I know you head up the portfolio solutions team at AQR that does a lot of this work. I'd be curious of what you saw. Just about every advisor portfolio I've ever looked at has an allocation to value, a lot of them small value. It was the dominant belief that that was the style tilt that should be taken. And so I sort of started to believe perhaps that it was so overcrowded that the premium had been squeezed out. And yet the counterpoint to that is value spreads reached almost dot-com levels, which you would not expect. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on this. Like, And it's not as obvious in other factors where value spreads perhaps have less meaning in a high turnover factor like momentum. But when you sort of look around the different styles, how do you think about maybe measuring crowdedness and that sort of risk? So this is related to this other side topic. And I do think that crowdedness, in my mind, it's best explained or measured by valuation. So let me just highlight some of these key ideas that everybody must hold market portfolio. And for anything else, you need another side. And we may come back to that market level, but this is also true for these long shot strategies. So if we all become more fond of, believe more in value strategy, we should see it very expensive. And in general, I thought that, okay, if, if there's a crowding problem with this systematic style premium in 2010s, we should see a generic richening of them. And we didn't. So that was something that made me comfortable. And I still, with hindsight, and I think I say it in the book, that the pocket where there was uh, possible crowding, that was the defensive one. So if the problem had shown up there, then the story would have more legs. But value strategy, you are sort of pointing out that it was already from 2000s and it was long run story where that popularity came. But really, really, after 2007, we didn't see value ever become particularly expensive then, I think, in the post-GFC years. And so there are some versions show that 2007 was expensive, but that's even dependent on the specification that you have. So I think that's hard to link that crowding story 
to the experience of 2010s. I'm still with hindsight wondering how to best think about it. Let's return to that still. I mean, I think I want to think about this crowding another side issue a little, both with value and other strategies and come back. Let's dive into that other side topic because I had the distinct honor of getting to serve as your discussant a couple of years back at our friend Wes Gray's Democratized Quant Conference. And I think it was a paper that was still a working paper for you at the time. And you actually now talk about the research you did in chapter eight and the whole idea behind the research is, okay, who is actually on the other side of these trades? And so I was hoping maybe you could explain a little bit about how you went around that, about doing that research, because I think it's pretty novel and interesting. And then I'd be curious, after all was said and done, what was the most surprising result for you? Yeah, okay. I mean, this is a huge, it has sort of snowball so that I wonder whether we will ever end up writing the paper because it's broad initially. So it started from this idea that if we tell the world that there is a long run premium for some strategy, it's almost a fiduciary duty to consider who is the other side who's going to sort of lose out of it. And then you can think of that from theoretical perspective, think of the various economic rationals. And I think I mentioned in the book that that part is pretty quickly satisfied. So there are so many possible stories for value, momentum, carry defensive, that we could even say that there is theory mining out there as opposed to data mining. There are so many possibilities. But again, it is important that those exist. So after that, we went to this. Okay, so let's study flows. Let's think about flows and holdings data. What that says about whether there's some interesting other sites that we can identify with the data. And there we are somewhat constrained with what kind of data exists that it typically is between different investor groups. And so first I'll just tell, I think the most surprising result is, is this that one could see that for the defensive strategy, hedge funds were the main other side that we could identify. And that's sort of weird because defensive, like better against beta strategies or so, one key story for them is that investors are leverage constrained and that causes it. Well, hedge funds shouldn't be leverage constrained. They should be in great position to take advantage of this, but they haven't. They, if anything, they made it worse with their behavior. And it's somehow telling it, okay, maybe they do have some leverage constraints or they just love the lottery tick. That's the other explanation so much that they have chosen to go that way. So I think that's among the many interesting results. I think that's the one that stands out. But let me just step back a little to what we started with earlier. That whole research leads to some really interesting insights. So first one is almost trivial. Market portfolio is the only portfolio that can be held by everyone. Everything else requires an active other side. On this one, so I think that's really cute. And John Cochrane has taken that further into suggesting that when we think of what kind of portfolios we should hold in the long run, one useful approach is to ask, how do I differ from the average investor who holds the market portfolio? And that gives you sort of the relevant tilts. And I like the idea, but when I've thought about it over the years, I see we get quickly into troubles. So that average investor, it's not some equal weighted. We are talking of a wealth-weighted average investor. Okay, so I think I know that this investor would be wealthier than older than average. So but I wouldn't be able to put some numbers. And so then thinking, how do I deviate from that? It's very difficult. And then separately, my book writes quite a bit about that market portfolio. How do you deviate from the market portfolio? Well, there are lots of questions on investable market portfolio. My favorite one is that, okay, we know that stock and bond market capitalizations are in the ballpark of 100 or 
ones might be 200 trillion. I mean, this is, but with real estate, is the correct number 3 trillion or 30 trillion or 300 trillion? It really depends on what you think of the word investable. So this is just showing how messy that is. And I'm sorry, that was totally detour, but this whole question leads you to some of these interesting paths. I already mentioned to you then how, when you think of the styles, you've got to have the other side. But let's just take this to the simplest level, to the equity market direction. So the idea here is then that if we hold on average market portfolio, it also means that we cannot net have different tilts from that. On average, we hold the market portfolio. And this then means that if we all become more risk averse at some time, could be now, you could think of 1987, you could think of 2008. Well, we can't rush to the exit at the same time. It's a crisis that have to adjust. So there is this sort of like, I say this, if aggregate risk preferences change, then valuations must change, not some net flows, because net flows must adapt to zero. For every buyer, there's a seller that's recycled. So anyway, so that's something which is so obvious, and yet we just keep forgetting that one. And so, again, I think there are implications to the value and other styles, but this just made me think in recent days, this is where I'm trying to get to, I thought, oh, I really should dust off my notes on the dynamics of markets in the kind of situation where we might be heading now. I think in chapter 20 of my expected returns, I talk about this, I don't know, balance of different investor types. You need to have pro-cyclic and stabilizing investors. And 2008 was a very interesting situation where that sort of imbalance. So Larry Summers wrote great papers actually at that time as a FT columnist of the pro-cyclic vicious circles that were overturning the normally stabilizing genius of capitalism, supply and demand. And the intuition is basically that the normally stabilizing investors stepped away from the market soon after the Lehman event. And then it wasn't clear how deeply we would go down that abyss. Anyway, so I could go so many different directions on this, but we already got to the value strategy. One last thing I think I want to say is that I do think that Valuations are the most useful crowding measure. That's where we got to that one. But then there's this other feature that people said, okay, we could look at some relevant investor subsets and ask whether they are useful crowding indicators. And typically the ones that are highlighted on that are then leveraged investors, could be hedge funds and short sellers. And there is this weird result that they are indeed, it makes sense that they are useful crowding indicators, but in practice, Following their positioning has been pretty good idea. Not so 16 months ago or so, and retail was creating a little revolution there. But in general, that has been the case. And that means that if you are trying to insure yourself against crowding problems, deleveraging scenarios through that lens, you are going to pay very expensive insurance premium. You are going against the smart money, hoping that that's going to help you in a particular episode and that just happens so rarely and so on that I don't think it's a good idea. Anyway, again, lots of things from this side. I'd like to throw it back to you again, whether you have got something on the crowding issue, especially on strategies which are faster moving. The logic that I was just talking about, looking at valuations and so on, that doesn't seem to be so important for trend or momentum strategies. So there maybe your liquidity cascade type of stories are much more important. 
I would like to point out, Auntie, that this is my podcast, and I'm supposed to be asking you the questions, <laughs> not the other way around. I'm, I'm giving you very long answers. There was a lot of research in the mid 2010s where people tried to ask this crowding question, and I think research affiliates wrote quite a bit about valuations and crowding, and then. Cliff fired back, pointing out that makes absolutely no sense for things like momentum, where you can have a 75, 100% turnover in a couple month period. What is the relevancy of valuation spreads? Because valuation spreads tend to collapse over a multi month, multi year period. So, not as relevant. A lot of the metrics I've tended to look at actually try to be the actual holdings overlap, because the risk being that you have a large number of parties that are unintentionally crowded, right? If you have a momentum manager that's only looking at what they're doing, a value manager that's only looking at what they're doing, and a defensive manager, and they're not neutralizing exposure to other factors, they can all end up in the same factor thinking internally that they're well diversified in their portfolio, but not realizing there's a huge overlap in the holdings that they have across managers. And I think that sort of goes to potentially what happened in the August 2007 quant quake to a large degree. Now, if you're talking about multi-factor manager, well, then I think naturally they would degross because they have so much overlap in the same concentration of positions. But when you have more isolated managers, it seems to me like there's a larger risk. And one of the things, I didn't write about this in my liquidity cascades paper, but I'd be curious as to your thoughts. One of the things I've thought a lot about is that risk factors and style premia getting more popular baked into a lot of portfolio construction, the traditional BARA risk analysis. I almost wonder with so much of that factor analysis ending up under the BARA definition, do fundamental managers who tend to rely on that more than say quant managers who might build their own signals, does that end up creating unintentional factor crowding among a large cohort of fundamental managers potentially into the almost identical definitions and characteristics of a factor. I would often say that there's surprisingly much divergence in among systematic managers. Different types of ways of doing value can be quite different. Also momentum actually like can be. So it is true that if there is something like maybe it's especially that true that if there is something which is very common and it's probably fair to say that systematic managers for example so if the anchor has been booked to price or something like that you could worry about that. Or now you say that let's worry about barra, whether it's through systematic or discretionary managers, that that would be driving this concentration. And that's possible. But I have seen, like, more often I've seen sort of the opposite problem that clients who look at different value managers and they complain that they've got so divergent performance that we thought that there would be some common thing. And so it really wasn't so obvious that there is so much similarity. And I did want to just throw back to this earlier point you then made of looking at these overlaps. Somehow, I think we just have to think about the bloody accounting identity. If we were capturing all investors, then I suspect some measures of overlap just will always be the same. And so it really matters. Like then you are thinking of overlap in some particular types of investors that you think are more relevant, and then you have to specify that. And then you can get to the, for example, you could get to that kind of story that I just said that maybe it's especially relevant to look at those hedge funds and leverage players, and then you end up paying some high insurance costs. And so again, I'm just for ourselves and for anybody sort of raising the bar, when one thinks that there's a cool story about flows, almost very rarely can be about total flows. It's got to be some subsets, and then you better start thinking what subsets you are talking about, and does this seem right? Otherwise, it's going to show up in valuations. 
But then you had the point, something of this going to the exit you mentioned. I do think somehow that with faster strategies, so with momentum and trend, the risk of too much money doing similar things is either that trading costs get higher when there's too much synchronous trading. And then the other thing is that if we do really try to exit at the same time with those types of strategies, then that exit is going to be particularly painful and you get very steep falls. And again, I think that idea has been there. And I don't think we have seen as many examples of that as we may be worried, but logically it seems like. I think that identity that you pointed out, that accounting identity is especially important. I think in my mind, what's sort of where it's always come down to is it's potentially levered players who are at the greatest knockout risk. So if you have the same hedge funds who are levered, borrowing effectively from unlevered players, those unlevered players don't get knocked out. But when you get concentration in the levered players, that's where you can potentially get the catastrophic unwinds. That's exactly then my point. Since there is a literature, follow the smart money in some sense. That's that's the money worth following in at least some studies. That's saying that you are going to pay a very high insurance cost wanting to go against that because you want to hedge against deleveraging scenarios. Maybe my natural follow-up question is, in this research, did you find that the other side was fairly consistent over time? Was it that hedge funds were always on the other side of the defensive style premium, or is that something that tends to ebb and flow? There certainly is some ebbing and flowing. One way we really try to identify things where even like eyeballing whether the positioning tended to be on one side, you can't expect it to be very stable, but it was typically on one side. So that's one kind of answer that while there's variation, there's enough, this one tilt, that seems right. But the other result is that when we really drilled into individual accounts within 13F data, we did find that there is a tendency for whoever is on one side of a tilt tends to be on that side of the tilt six to 12 months later or something like that. So basically, this kind of matrices that look at how stable things are, they were telling that there's not total flip-flopping around and so on, but there is pretty clear tendency. And that was helpful because otherwise, we really we were often not getting very strong results because if you are looking at overall, let's say, mutual fund industry, you are not going to get very big overall tilts there because you have got lots of value managers and growth managers inside that, and the aggregate for the mutual fund industry is just going to show it. So going into the more granular data, it was pleasing to see that there is stability in the tilts that various investors were taking. So one of the big trends, big structural trends of the last 20, 30 years has been the growth of passive investing. It ties to me nicely into this idea of who's on the other side. My question to you would be, do you think that the rise of passive indexing can lead to fewer people making cross-sectional pricing errors, being sort of the sucker on the other side and therefore lead over time to smaller opportunities for that sort of cross-sectional mispricing? Yeah. So this is open to debate. I at least read it like Michael Mobusin had this idea of paradox of skill. He linked it to baseball players where those 40.4 batting averages anymore. So where the rising skill level of market participants makes it harder to beat the market. Okay, So that's the idea. He used, I think, the poker analogy. So most patsies have left the poker table and you may now be playing only with sharks, such as hedge funds or high-frequency traders or some other experts. So I countered that by saying that we really don't know from the rise of passive investing what it means regarding whether Patsy has left the table. And let me just clarify this. So 
we know that there's been a shift from active to passive, but we don't really know whether the money that went to index investing came from the amateur investors directly or whether it came from money that they had delegated to active managers, typically fundamental active managers who had high fees and hadn't performed so well. The idea that when we think of how markets work is that those managers, they do lots of fundamental analysis. They are the ones who set the prices. And if it's those delegated managers that actually were lost from the poker table, then I think we may have lost arguably the sharks who set the fair price and had done most of the work. Passive market participants are more the free riders in this. So with that logic, it could be that market pricing may have become more or less efficient, really depending on whether the index flows are replacing the amateur or this supposedly expert delegated manager. So I summarize it just saying, it's not clear whether the Patsy or the shark has left the table. I like that. I think it goes back to that accounting identity. I sort of think of it as if every growth investor in the world wanted to capitulate and become an index investor, the only way that happens is either every value investor in the world capitulates at the same time and they all buy the market portfolio and cancel each other out and the market portfolio doesn't change, or they all start capitulating and have to drive the market portfolio to a price that it actually meets exactly what the average value investor would hold. And then they're all on the same side. But it's sort of this, again, it goes back to the accounting identity and a question of who is stepping away. Is the patsy stepping away? Are the sharks and the patsy stepping away at the same time? Or are the sharks getting priced out of the market? Yeah. A related question that is often asked is now whether this rise in indexing has implications for these style tilts. And it really depends on what the market index is and it depends on where it's sourced. So if it comes mainly from value, then there's something. And if it comes from growth, that probably it comes from whatever was doing less well recently. I think that's something. Then the other side is whether the market index itself has got some factor tilts. That's sort of interesting other side. There, like the first answer is if we are talking of true market index, and let's just focus on equities and not get to the complexity of multi-asset class. But so with equities, if the market index were all cap index, then I think it really would be neutral. But since S&P 500 is in practice the most common indexing vehicle out there, and it has got some large cap growth bias. It sort of makes sense that indexing can boost that style box. And I think people probably make too much out of that, but there's something. And somewhat related, there's sometimes the market portfolio is momentum oriented. Compared to what, it probably there's something to that. Let's say certain stocks or sectors are getting overpriced, then market will weigh them more, and there's something to that. But any effort that, like when we try to look at that data, it certainly wasn't the momentum we think of as last three to 12 months momentum. I think it's a much more gradual thing. Like if you try to make sense of what kind of tilt market has, I think it would be multi-year momentum. And we would be sort of, that story, I think, gets more to the value territory. The market portfolio has become too anti-value because of such momentum biases. I think a lot of that story, and certainly one that's getting a lot of popular play on Twitter. I know you're not on Twitter. That's probably a good thing. But there's a lot of active debate around this whole indexing effect. And I think a lot of it goes to stock versus flow in many ways. By definition, the market portfolio, if we're again, just talking equities, if you've got a total market portfolio, it can't have tilts. Tilts are what's off portfolio. So by definition, the market portfolio shouldn't have tilts. But I think people who talk about that momentum effect 
are talking about is the ongoing flow. When you look day to day, that the next day's flow is going to buy more of the relative recent performers and less of the relative losers. And the big question is, does flow, whether it's informed or noise, have permanent impact on prices? And I think that's a lot of the interesting academic literature that's coming out now. There's people who are very strongly in the camp of yes, and there's people who are in the camp of maybe in it. Again, it's that voting machine versus weighing machine in the long run. It all dissolves and there might be some event-driven flow arbitrage you might be able to work out of it. And then there's obviously the camp that says, no, this is all just noise that washes out. So it's a really interesting live ongoing debate that I suspect we'll never get to the bottom of. Yeah, but let me say something on that. So again, if the flows to equity index are coming from active equity managers, delegated managers who had higher fees and people are too, that shouldn't probably have too much impact on the overall. So it is that intuition says that, okay, it matters much more if the money is coming from outside equity market. Like the classic academic idea was that, that individual stocks are sort of perfectly substitutable. There really should be almost no flow effects. But the new results that have come from some academics, Gabaikskoy and Elastic Market Hypothesis, says in the spirit that we were saying that if the money travels across asset classes, it comes into equities from something else, there could be a very large pricing impact that they quote. So, so big numbers, like five times or eight to seven times impact. My best reading is that this is a real challenge now to old academic consensus on this, but it's that study is still new. Its econometric methods are so complex and not transparent for most readers, and there are debates about it. So let's see as it moves on. These are super smart academics, so one has to give them the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, I'd be surprised if the headline results will survive as they are now. But I think the basic idea that there's a very different type of numbers if we are talking of money flowing into equity markets as opposed to within equity markets. And that's taking our knowledge a bit further now. So speaking of the new literature, Again, the 2010s were a period of just prolific academic publication, a lot of studies around style, premium, portfolio construction. I'm curious, what was the favorite paper that you read published by others? And what was the favorite piece of research that you worked on? I do love work by my colleagues, Value and Momentum Everywhere or Betting Against Beta. In some sense, they introduced AQR's way of studying this key factors in a very holistic way, looking at empirical evidence in many different asset classes, covering economic rationals, etc. So I think that's great. But now those were actually already written, first versions anyway, in late 00s, 2000s. So maybe they are disqualified. Journal publication process this to 2013-14. So with something with more honestly, like 2010s, they were, I think, John Cochrane's discount rates. So this was his presidential address when AFA in 2011. So he told in that paper that there's been a shift in academic consensus for, for thinking about expected cash flows dominate asset prices to thinking that time varying expected returns, required returns are the key reason. It's just one thing there. He coined the term factor zoo there, talked a lot about this systematic cross-sectional strategies. And in general, he provided a great blueprint, I think, both for finance research and practitioners and some of the things were suggesting like advisors should also like focus a lot on more humble parts of ways of improving client portfolios than let's say some tactical timing or so on. So that's I think my thing there. With all papers, in general, I 
I'm not going to give you one because I like to diversify. I write blue collar finance. So far, my friends thought this time. Let's not get too fancy. Let's try to understand things pretty important issues with relatively simple analysis. So I think all investing with style was important, somewhat related, even simpler, exploring macroeconomic sensitivities, both really think talking about the style, especially from diversification, I mean, providing lots of evidence, but also about the benefits of diversification. And then seen a little the market timing paper. All of these are co-authored with your colleagues. Those are the papers I'm most proud of. All right, we're going to take a hard left turn here, a little into the world of gossip, but we're making our way towards talking about trend. So I'm going to lay the foundation here that in post-March 2020, Cliff Asnes and Nassim Taleb gotten a pretty incendiary spat over Twitter, again, reminding you, stay off Twitter. <laughs> but it was an argument about the use of put options in a portfolio versus trend strategies as a means to manage portfolio risk. And what I don't think many people were aware of, even myself, I was not aware of at the time, that it was really just a rehash of a debate that you and Taleb had back in, I think it was like 2012, 2013, where you both argued from empirical and economic rationale, and you were arguing in support of trend. Now, if we take a step back, I always, when I read Cliff's arguments and Nassim's arguments, it seemed to me like it was really two parties talking past each other. One evaluating the strategies on a standalone basis and one sort of talking about the impacts on a portfolio's geometric return. Again, Twitter is not a great place to have a debate. So a lot of it could have just been lost in the nuance. And I suspect I am missing part of the picture here. So I sort of want to take a step back and say, you had the debate in the early 2010s. We've now come forward a full decade. Has your opinion changed or is tail hedging really just an expensive fool's errand? First, with that Twitter exchange there, I did love this way Cliff has got the instinct to defend someone in his team, whether it was me or somebody else didn't really matter, but he's part of his character, this Don Quixote fighting windmills and pugilist if needed. And in my case, I wanted really to answer that stuff. Twitter is not my playground and I wanted to do a serious paper, which I did a couple of months later. We have got a paper, Tail Risk Hedging, comparing, contrasting, put and trend strategies. I would say to your reading, I don't think we were talking past each other. Like certainly in 2013, Taleb made things very easy for us because he was really focusing on standalone performance. So on your idea that we talked past one another, I don't even think in 2020 the question was about the portfolio role because we do agree that a good tail head strategy, even if you have a negative sharp ratio, you can improve portfolio performance with that. And in various ways. And that math is clear, though in reality, regular put buying strategies have had such a bad long run sharp ratio that would probably have done the job. And the other thing I often highlight is that investors tend to succumb to line item thinking and impatience, which makes it very difficult to expect this kind of rational behavior that's required with that portfolio aspect. But so again, definitely that older exchange I had with him in FHA, Financial Analyst Journal, I think he made it easy by focusing on standalone performance of put buying. And I do think that Cliff was pretty careful to him. <laughs> he was clearly hot-blooded there, but he knew that that's a safe ground to debate here. And so on that topic, now I'm going to be loose because we could be talking about vol buying, put buying, tail insurance. Like they all are distinct but related strategies. 
my argument had always been and our argument is that those strategies can and tend to have negative long-run return premium. They tend to lose money, maybe for a good reason. Whereas Taleb has tended to imply that they are costless or better. So when you look at empirical evidence, those strategies have tended to lose money, but they have provided wonderful financial catastrophe insurance. They made money at very valuable times, 2008, 87, March 2020. So there's also good theoretical arguments. The best theories say that, that you should basically pay for such a service. And that strategy, basically market tends to dislike fast crashes. That's pretty evident from the pricing when we look at the option pricing. And that means that if you just keep doing that and you don't have some extra secret source, then that's going to be a very costly sort of at least minus 0.5 sharp ratio strategy. I would say that's, that's what we have shown in many papers over the years. The latest one, I think, is the, the best reading. By the way, I saw an Amazon review on my book, and I confess that it's irritated me a little that there was criticism that I, I haven't done full justice to the tail risk hedging nuances. And I was like, okay, I've got lots of topic in these books, and I got, I think, four pages on this topic, and I am telling that there's more detail in an article, and that article has got, I think, pretty much all the arguments, and I'm really trying to be with my co-authors even-handed on these issues. And I think we still can say very comfortably that those strategies are costly, they tend to lose money in the long run, unless you've got some secret source such as identifying cheaper ways of doing this, doing the protection or monetizing, which are basically some bells and whistles, which are not sure to be successful, but they can, and there are good studies on it. So, but the base case that we show is that those strategies have lost money and Taleb's critic then 2013, I mean, it had many parts, there was, you should include 87, which I included later. But ultimately, he was saying that you really, you need 2,000 years of data when you have got these types of bad tail strategies that rely on rare events. And my only answer to that was, okay, we do not have those 2,000 years. We have got 35 years of data since index options were created. That data tells a very clear story, which has got a very natural, theoretical, rational, according to this logic, I think. Things seemed pretty clear and he's pretty alone on that other side. And maybe as a one more nuance, I say that like, because his logic really had, I think, then an implied premise that these recent decades must have been too benign overall so that they don't reveal the true value of put buying. And then I just say that, well, look at those 35 years. We had two 50% drawdowns and we had other fast crashes like 87, 2020 and so on. I don't know what reality we should consider neutral, but that did not seem to be too benign. So anyway, this is a long-winded way again of saying that I do think tail hedging is very costly. Even the good ones who have a good track record, and that could be like core skill, you can't really tell, and you might need 2,000 years again to make judgments on that one. I much prefer tail hedging strategies, which are less costly, and that gets us to the trend type of strategies, which are not foolproof and they don't give as convex big jackpots as small strategies do, but I think they are much more sustainable than these option-based approaches. Yeah, I've sort of always been of the view just from an economic rationale perspective, if you believe equities have a positive risk premium, I don't know how put options could. You're buying insurance against an asset that has a positive risk premium that should have a negative expected return. Maybe I could agree with Nassim that tails are inherently 
underpriced to a certain degree, but we'll never know that. By definition, there's very little data in the tales. And so this is just a pure theoretical exercise. I've always sort of viewed this as those sort of hedges really make the most sense potentially if it allows you to take on more exposure to positive expected risk premium assets to hedge that one particular path dependency that would knock you out of those assets. And maybe it makes sense under those conditions, but otherwise, and again, I do believe it can add to the geometric growth of a portfolio that's been demonstrated squarely to me, but it doesn't have to be either or. Like you can diversify your diversifiers and perhaps that might be the best way of all. I think that's fair, but I think it is important to, again, recognize and be open about the costs that anybody who does this gets this. I say trend following when it has a disappointing decade, it tends to be flat. This one loses 80, 90%. So that's, that is something. The other, okay, so now if I want to be picky, then I say there is this distinction again between fast and slow crashes. I think it does seem that market cares more, prices more aggressively or the fast crashes because again, this negative sharp ratio strategy in put buying, whereas you have it's historically clearly a positive sharp ratio in trend following strategy, which is more fitting to the gradual bear market. So fast crashes can be a Achilles heel for trend following. They not always are, but sometimes they are. But so can slow crashes can be for put buying. So early 2000s, when you had three-year bear market, often happened that you didn't reach the strikes and you paid for insurance and you paid for ever higher option prices in that, and then you didn't get the protection. So that must have been very frustrating. And actually, I just saw a few days ago the new P-put data for 2022. And that's the situation that the standard data there tells. This year so far, the bear market, at least until recently, was so gradual that you were losing money, but you were not getting it back from your protective puts. So again, they too have their Achilles heels, which tells that you are right diversifying across them can be good, but I would diversify them, not equally. I would favor the cheaper one and the one which goes for the more gradual bear markets. One of the things that I find a little funny about this debate is that there is a connection between trend following and option strategies in many ways. And we'll ignore sort of the multi-asset nature of a portfolio, but if we just look at, say, trend following on one particular market, it looks very much like the delta exposure you would have if you were trying to hedge a look-back straddle. That research has been done. So it's interesting to me to think about with puts in particular, you're paying a premium for the market's perception of risk, and then you're getting a payoff if that perception goes up or if the house actually catches on fire. Whereas trend following tries to avoid paying for the perception perhaps ends up paying for it in a different way with Whipsaw. Sorry, before you go to the next topic, I got to say this. Our age difference shows up. 1987 is so relevant for this one. And I was a young portfolio manager. They're watching actually that crash in my first working year. And of course, the story of, and I don't ask your age on 1987, but anyway, so that's the famous story of portfolio insurance, which is basically a dynamic strategy which tries to capture option payoff. And then when, if market gaps down, it fails. And that's the difference between trend type of strategies and option-based strategies. And I think the lesson people maybe took too much to their heart from 1987 was really want protection against those crashes. And that just has been, with this history, it's been a very expensive requirement. Yeah, absolutely. That gap risk is what they're trying to protect against. And to protect against the gap risk, you're going to pay a premium. But as you mentioned, trend following 
then because of that whipsaw, when it underperforms, can underperform for a decade. And it did in the 2010s. And there's been sort of the unsatisfying answer to me is, well, there were just no trends. And the question that's more interesting is why were there no trends? I've heard some people argue that post-2008, there was so much money that came into the space because trend following got promoted as this crisis risk alpha or this sort of tailhead strategy that not only did it become crowded, but it forced all these trend followers into longer term strategies where the trends weren't necessarily as prevalent. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that it might actually have more to do with the macroeconomic environment and that the setup today might be more interesting. Curious as to your thoughts, in your opinion, is there any clear reason why the prospects for trend going forward should be meaningfully better than they were over the last decade? Yeah. My colleagues at this paper, you cannot always trend when you want that. And there they looked at different explanations and it really came up with this. Sounds like obvious, but it wasn't so obvious. That explanation that it was the very short trends, abnormally short trends in 2010s. That was the reason. And then it begs that why question. And they didn't address it too much. My best takeaway on that one certainly is that central banks were trying to curtail big macro trends that, that hurt both macro managers and trend followers. I do want to say here that when that paper came out a couple of years ago, I said that this portents sort of difficult environment for trends still for a while because central banks still are able and willing to curtail those trends. But there will come a day when central banks no longer can easily do this, when their own credibility is on the line and when they have to make hard choices between inflation versus recession or market drawdowns. And that day clearly has arrived this year and trend strategy is shining like it has comparable to 2008. So that's, I think, that's a macro environment now. While we don't normally think that there are these good and bad environments for it, but that story, I think, that just really seems right to me. Another reason, I think, sort of macro reason why trend couldn't sign, and it is related, is that we just didn't get those persistent bear markets because that is, again, like short bear markets tend to be the weak source then, and so it's, it's gradual ones where they are more reliable. And for somebody who doesn't know, trend-following strategy does especially well when it can turn from risk onto risk off. And it's not just equity shots. It can be duration, longs, and anti-carry, and pro-gold versus growth commodity. So risk off in many asset classes. And ride that along a protracted bear market when most risky assets suffer. And this is super valuable feature. And by the way, this is especially useful for private equity, private assets, because they don't suffer from the fast bear market smoothing helps them in those situations. For them, it is this protracted bear market, which is a problem. So we have basically labeled trend and private equity a marriage made in heaven because of this complementary. And we've basically checked data on private equity history, and we see that when they have done at their rare bad windows, trend following indeed is doing well. So I think that's pretty cool. I'm going to push you into what might be a deeply uncomfortable zone and talk to you about cryptocurrency for a second. Because I noticed that crypto was a pretty large development in the sphere of financial markets, or at least tangential to financial markets. And it was largely missing from your book. And so let's maybe start with an easy, not so easy question, which is, would you expect style premia to exist in crypto? And would you be surprised if they did or did not. Yeah, I'd absolutely expect to see patterns like value, momentum, and low risk effects there. Because when we have extended our research to various investments, we just 
almost always find them. If we don't, there's something. I mean, there are some like in China, those more reversal, maybe related to retail. So, so there, there's going to be some really good reason why this is happening. And I suspect when market develops, we do get these things. So yes, I expect them in cryptos. And by the way, we have my colleagues who are doing the trend following strategy with some alternative assets. They have included some cryptos, mostly cryptos there. So I think that makes sense. As much as I'd love to get your opinion about cryptocurrency, I'm not going to ask it. I'm going to give you a free pass on that one. But I am curious, as someone who takes a look at financial history and someone who is a big picture thinker, we do see from time to time the emergence of new asset classes. And I'm curious how you think about when a new asset class comes out, maybe how you categorize it or how you think about where it would fit within a portfolio when there's a lack of data to analyze. Yeah. Since we have got enough assets where we have got long data, I am not rushing into those situations. But if I were, I would try to learn from similar assets with longer histories or better quality data. I've thought this in private asset context that I may be like the drunk who is looking for the penny under the other side of the street because that's where the lamp is. So with private assets, I say that I've got decent histories with real estate and private equity. I'm going to study those and draw lessons for things like private credit and infrastructure where we have really short histories. So something similar, I think, in this case. And then another point is I would be conservative, keep risk sizes conservative, if not at zero, until there's more that we can learn. I think someone discretionary can do this, but for systematic managers, unless they are very high frequency, it's just not enough data. And yeah, now we didn't even get to the suspicious areas. Maybe in a decade, in your next book, we'll see crypto show up. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. You never know. We never know. And I am humble enough on that one. Absolutely. That much I say that I have thought about the scenarios where I will feel very unhappy with myself, with Bitcoin in particular, because I have seen this scenario of central banks losing credibility, and that would help Bitcoin's credibility as an alternative. And I was sort of waiting for this kind of situation as we have now this year. And I thought that, okay, if I don't put anything in them, and this is the way they get their long-run success, I will feel particularly silly. So we'll see. But so far this year, you know, they haven't acted along the lines of my worries. So retain my prejudices. There you go. Well, let's get back to the book as we round towards the end of our conversation. Some of the final book topics I did want to discuss with you. Because again, this book re-emphasizes a lot of the cases you laid out in expected returns around style premia, but it also really drives home the need for patience and discipline. I mean, you wrote an entire chapter just dedicated to good habits, which I expect probably came from frustrating client conversations. I won't ask you. (laughs) Who knows? Just a suspicion. But I guess my question to you would be, what would make you give up? on style premia. Is there anything that would make you say the evidence is clear, either empirically or theoretically, that I need to walk away from these? Well, first, so it wouldn't be easy. This patience depends a lot on your beliefs, convictions. And my best evidence-based judgment is that the long-run story is so compelling that I'm not going to lose my conviction with a few bad years. And that is both the evidence of how these things have worked in so many places in our long histories, and again, not every three-year window and so on, but, but the long-run story is so compelling. And then separately, the diversification argument, how you can double your sharp ratios by combining a few styles. 
if they run correlated and double again, if you apply them in many asset classes. So those things, they are strong rooted convictions. So that means that my answer is probably different from what I'd suggest for almost anybody, you know, but for most investors, because they will not have as much convictions or patience as I do. For me to give up on this course time premium, it would require a combination of economic rationale, why the time is up, and some compelling empirical evidence, which could be quite pain, sort of embarrassingly long time of disappointing performance, or perhaps two good performance at high valuations. That would be a nice way of getting there. Or higher trading costs eroding the opportunity, or maybe correlations becoming less friendly, you know, that the diversification story, which has held up quite nicely, but that would weaken significantly. So I don't hold my breath on that. One of the topics that didn't come up in the book, but it's something I've been spending a lot more time thinking about lately is the topic of structure. Because it's one thing to talk about these ideas and concept, but you have to be able to actually implement them. And the ability to implement some of these ideas might be limited by the investment structure that investors have access to. So for example, here in the US, mutual funds and ETFs have significant leverage restrictions that may make certain strategies just potentially less attractive. Curious how much of the theory that you lay out is applicable when structure is more restrictive or how does the theory change? So first overall, I'm not an expert. I pick my battles and I get some colleagues who are better at this and I leave it to them. But there's, I think, one interesting answer is that some structures clearly reinforce the opportunities. Leverage constraints really are the, they are at the heart of the bet against beta explanation. That This is why those boring stocks give better performance because you sort of have to choose them with leverage, whereas the more speculative stocks with low, long-run sharp ratios, they contain this embedded leverage. And then there's a separate argument that shorting and leverage are tools that are helpful for arbitraging away any opportunities. And so if we have a real constraint, real world constraints that prevent such arbitrage activity, that can sustain many premia. So I think that's a nice answer. Also, I'm not an expert on that, but my understanding is that with mutual funds and ETFs, the leverage limits are not too binding anyway. If you're trying to improve diversification and not get to some overall high silly risk levels. So if it's of some value at risk based limits rather than notional limits, then I think it often isn't binding for most investors. And we are seeing those limits change here in the US. The SEC is adopting those value at risk limits, which could open up a large number more of leverage-based strategies. So it'll be really interesting to watch how that plays out. I also think to myself, okay, how much of that is also potentially going to increase the risk of coincidental degrossing, that all these strategies that are now levered end up hitting far limits at the same time and having to sell. So it's an interesting risk factor I'm keeping in the back of my mind. Yeah. 2008 had some of that and it's worth worrying, but also check the cost of your insurance for that. Yeah. So these books you've written, Expected Returns, and your most recent book are both theoretical and somewhat prescriptive. I know that your role at AQR semi-formally or formally is co-head of the Portfolio Solutions Group. In your experience working with clients, I'm curious maybe What's the lowest hanging fruit to improving most client portfolios? I'll give the first one because the low hanging fruit really depends on how difficult it is to do this. The premier bad habit, as I call it, is this multi-year return chasing and, and related capitulations. And 
that's related to the impatience theme that we've talked about it. We demand more performance consistency than is fair to ask in competitive markets. But there are no easy answers to this one. And at best, this book can set it as a goal and propose some, actually it does even propose some tools, some tricks for self-improvement, how to cultivate patience, if you agree that it's a good goal. But there are other ones under diversification and especially something we've talked about in the past, equity risk concentration in almost all portfolios. That's extremely common and could be improved on, but it is not so easy because it really is the, the risk that is easiest to bear, conventionality, um, embedded leverage and so on, besides good empirical evidence and theories. So I think there is more patience. Only equities are forgiven that bad decade, nothing else. So that is a sort of flip side to my first story. If you want to cultivate patience, maybe you should have equity-oriented portfolios and forget diversification ambitions. Then I must still mention too much faith in illiquidity premium. So again, I think there is something in that, but something that resonates quite a lot with investors, even though they are loading up on those illiquidity premia, is when I'm telling that inflows and tougher competition among these market participants does show up in narrower valuation gaps and prevents fee pressure, so the future will not be so great. And then there's this thing that Cliff and I have been both preaching about, that any illiquidity premia may be offset by the other feature, Investors love up there with the smoothing service, lack of mark-to-market. So those are, I think, important. So perhaps after all this discussion of theory, the most important question I can ask you, if you're willing to answer it, is a pretty simple one, which is how do you actually invest? Yeah, I'm pretty constrained, but I'm, so I live in Europe. Regulatory and tax reasons mean that I only invest in usage funds, but it's sort of okay. Fits with me. I invest simply and slowly. I don't trade. I invest Lucky enough that it's been accumulation. So, so far, I most never sold except when the job changes required this. When I'm buying, I'm still a bit contrarian, more likely to buy after market falls. But the key theme really is this. I diversify a lot. Harvesting multiple premiums, as you have heard. So besides any real estate that I have, the portfolio is pretty much a combination of various long, short and long only AQR funds and some index funds. So I practice what I preach. I have skin in the game, but I admit that it's not very good diversification between my labor income and investments. Maybe your audience knows this, but this sounds so static. It is important to understand if you do invest in this kind of style premium, I can make one decision, but actually the underlyings will be quite dynamic there. They can evolve a lot because of the evolving style signals and risk management and so on. But really, the short answer is I want to also figure out what I believe in and stick with it. And I am doing what suits me well. And that probably isn't what suits most investors well if they don't share my beliefs and convictions. So I'm just trying to encourage them to perhaps move to this direction if it fits them, but recognize when they are going too far and trying to stop there so that there's not too much knee-jerk reaction if one year's performance doesn't validate their beliefs. I love, by the way, you said it very subtly, the acknowledgement of the human capital element of the investment balance sheet. And I think that often goes very overlooked in investment discussions of what you do for a career and what that payoff profile looks like over the long run and how correlated it is to the assets in your investment portfolio is very important when we think about the holistic investment perspective. And I know for a lot of asset managers, it's difficult because your career is very much skin in the game and you also want to invest in the funds that you manage but in many ways, it's doubling down in risk in a way that we would encourage clients not to. 
So it's this weird, difficult situation. It's a bit like people say, if a trade goes bad, it becomes an investment. So in the same spirit, you can go to that skin in the game argument and it don't work out. But I think it's been always there for me and many others. It does matter. And you've got to, in some sense, accept some poor diversification for credibility reasons. Well, the last question I am asking every guest this season is to reflect upon the good fortune you've had in your career. And tell me, what do you think the luckiest break you've had in your career is? 1989. I did tell this just somewhere, but it is so the sliding doors moment where Ken French suggested that I should go for the Chicago PhD program faster than I thought. So basically, he liked this young guy and he encouraged me not to wait because there are some people who are much younger. So I was getting 28 and thinking of this when we met and, and he said there are much younger people. So when I, and this is actually new that when I go to the program, Autumn 89, the TA in pharma class is one obnoxious but super smart Mr. Asnes there, who is six years younger than me. And so that was very useful for my future career, apart from arguably more important things than meeting my wife in that year and getting the lovely, lovely education that I did. So there were lots of wonderful things that happened because of this. But yeah, meeting Cliff and John, another founder there, was great. And it turned out very good for me that I was quite good at that class. And I think Cliff got somehow the impression that he's a smart guy and that sort of gave me, a, I don't know, some kind of ticket for the future when I moved to Europe. So when geography made it possible that we did join forces sometime, we did act on it. I absolutely love it. Well, Antia, I can't thank you enough for joining me. Congratulations on your new book, Investing Amid Low Expected Returns. I would encourage everyone to pick it up. And I certainly hope that I don't have to wait until your next book comes out to have you back on the podcast. But I'll understand if I've got to wait a decade. I'll wait. Good. Thanks, Corey. This was wonderful. 